The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. This week is Art Basel Week, so all of the big galleries and collectors and many of the top museum directors and curators have decamped the Swiss city for the 50th edition of the fair. We'll talk to our editor-at-large, Melanie Gerlis, about that a bit later. But first this week, as ever, major museum shows accompany the Art Basel Fair, and one of the most notable exhibitions this year is at the Kunstmuseum, dedicated to the South African artist William Kentridge. Kentridge is a great polymath of art. He begins always by making drawings, but then often animates and films them. Increasingly, he's worked with musicians, dancers, singers, designers, composers and others to create extraordinary immersive works with multiple screens and live performances, including the remarkable work The Head and the Load, seen last year in London and New York. That tells the story of African soldiers in the First World War. It's a busy summer for Kentridge, as well as the Basel show, he has a two-part exhibition opening in museums in Cape Town. He visited London recently and I caught up with him in a hotel cafe with Christina Ruiz, an editor-at-large at at the art newspaper, a contributing editor to The Gentlewoman and news editor on art for Vanity Fair, to talk about his various projects. William, could we begin by talking about your new work for Basel, which directly refers to the collection and to Erasmus and Hans Holbein. Can you tell us more about it? Over the last ten years, I realised, I've been making short films which are called uh, Drawing Lessons, is the title of all of them, most of which involve me interrogating myself. So sometimes the questions have actually come out of interview questions people have sent, and it was done with the test to see, in the self-interrogation, can I ever discover anything new which I hadn't expected? And the piece for Basel is another in this series. In this case, it's called Learning from the Old Masters because it's shown in the Basel Kunstmuseum in amongst their Kirchfitters and their Picassos and their Kranachs and the Grunewalds. And it also has to do with the presence of Desiderius Erasmus in Basel. And his famous book was called In Praise of Folly. And so In Praise of Folly is with this... uh, drawing lesson is called and what it is a demonstration is folly itself so it's a series of questions which half get answered what is a contemporary artist doing in amongst these old masters of the museum and one the one persona myself on one side of a table and microphone saying you have no right to be there and the other applying in the latin of erasmus himself thereby justifying the skepticism of the first person so This self-interrogation is a consistent element of your work. You're very often in your work. Can you tell me about the range, I guess, the range of intentions of placing yourself at the heart of your work? To give a very easy example, for anyone who's ever written anything or ever drawn anything or ever recorded themselves speaking or singing, there's an enormous difference to one's sense of who you are in the moment of making. As you're writing, every sentence feels just fine and red-hot. When you're drawing, every line seems necessary. When you're singing, it sounds great. And then when you step back and the artist as viewer instead of the artist as maker comes forward, one is always disappointed with oneself. Uh, So what seemed like such good writing the night before, when you reread it the next one, you say, that wasn't me. I couldn't have written anything so stupid. Some other idiot did it. And when you see the drawing, you say, why did the person draw so badly? He's been doing it for enough years. He should know how a horse looks. You can see the neck is in the wrong place. The hindquarters are wrong. And you curse yourself. 
And that shifting between yourself as the maker and stepping one step back to be the viewer is something that is very present and obvious in the studio, but is often less directly painfully obvious in the rest of one's life in the world. So that's one of the ways in which the things which are natural to the studio often serve to make things which are invisible in daily life very present and directly there. And I suppose the drawing lessons and a lot of the work, that's, that's the aim. The studio becomes both the physical place of making the work and it becomes, a, I wouldn't say metaphysical inquiry as to how we see the world, but it very often is a demonstration of how we apprehend the world. Ways of apprehending the world that are natural in a studio or if you're making a drawing seem surprising if you apply them to ordinary life, but I think are usually correct in how they operate. And what about inviting the viewer into that space? Because I'm very conscious that I very often feel almost like I'm on the brink of entering the spaces you're describing. Well, a lot of the films are made in the studio itself. And so if I look at them over 10 years, what the films are also is a diary of what was being made in the studio at the time. The different images on the wall behind the performances in front of it are a kind of record or diary. And so that sense of saying rather than feeling we have to build a whole set or we have to do it in a lecture hall, but saying the studio can both be the physical place of making but it can also be the stage set in which things happen, and it can be the subject which is being interrogated, are all possible. So there's a flexibility, a speed, and an ease of working and thinking that way, which is, of course, made possible by the simplicity of video editing and video cameras now, which would have been a very technical, expensive, cumbersome exercise 40 years ago. You know, anyone with a laptop and uh, their cell phone can kind of do it. So... Um Another of the new works that you're showing in Basel relates to an extraordinary performance which premiered at, at, at Tate Modern last year, which was called The Head and the Load. Can you explain the, the background to that work? But I'm also interested in the process of converting a, a very complex performance into an installation. The Head and the Load is a piece that was designed both for the Turbine Hall at the Tate, which is this enormous space, and the armory in Park Avenue Armory in New York, which also is a huge drill hall. So it was to have a stage instead of a stage which would normally be 15 metres long, to have a stage nearly 60 metres long. So it had to do with extent, with processions, with seeing something in the distance while you're watching, something very close to you in the performance. That's the form of it, that's the shape of it. Thematically, it had to do with an exploration of the First World War in Africa, which is a further examination of Europe's relationship to Africa, of the history of colonialism, which is both a historical question and a very contemporary question in, in Africa. So the form of it was a large-scale theatrical piece with approximately 40 people on stage and screens 10 metres high and 60 metres long and many musicians. But to make the piece, it was made in two stages in the studio in Johannesburg. The one was in a larger sculpture studio I have where we would have filmed performers, where we would have done rehearsals with the actors. It's not the scale that we would, the final thing was on it. It's big enough to have 30 people in the room at the time. But a lot of the preparing and thinking it through, and particularly looking at the videos, is done on a model in my garden studio. And that model, instead of being 50 meters wide, is three and a half meters wide. And it works with three miniature projectors on the screen that mimic the huge projectors in the theater. And so a lot of it is work there. And what is being shown in 
Basel and in a similar exhibition in Cape Town in August is this maquette. So it doesn't have the live actors. It doesn't even have, you know, it's 15 minutes long rather than an hour and a half long. But it has a lot of the themes, the thinking, and the ways of understanding history in it. And that is to understand history as a collage rather than as a single narrative. And to see, could one make a historical argument without having to reduce it to an individual story? One of the things that I was struck by when I saw the performance of The Head and the Load was the way that you combined a history in terms of the war with art history in terms of the language of the early 20th century. And I wonder, um, was that connection in your mind right from the start or, or was there a eureka moment in a way where you realised that actually the two things corresponded? Well, I think with any project I do, there always there has to be both a theme, a th- you know, thematic interest of some element of the world, whether it's historical or the nature of time in the refusal of time. But there has to be both this theme, and there also has to be a material and a visual language through which to think it. And for me, this was really had to do with Dada which, you know, Zurich uh, 1916, the middle of the First World War, is a whole new way of thinking what an artist does and a new way of understanding how the world operates and the way that the absurd becomes a way of describing the world. So this is a huge formal break in how one can make art. And this was very early on at the heart of the thinking, which was to say we would allow ourselves to use nonsense, to use languages that couldn't be understood, to not feel that logical argument was the way of understanding it. I mean, Dada in a sentence would be, the good logic of the Western world had brought about the cataclysm of the First World War, therefore one needed a less good logic, one needed a bad logic. And that was what we followed in the piece, which is a mixture of European high modernism, African choral traditions, uh, fragments of the Dadaist manifesto, bits of Franz Fanon, uh, trying to show this crazy amalgam of things that constituted the world both at that time and as it echoes today. So a lot of the installations that you'll be showing in Basel include processions of one kind or another, um, including uh, More Sweetly Play the Dance. And of course you have also worked with a procession in the giant frieze that you created in Rome alongside the Tiber, which you did by water blasting the dirt off of the walls. And can you talk to us a little bit about why you're so interested in processions and these parades of people? So it's interesting, I mean there's an interest in both processions, promenades and parades. If you're a very good artist or a very good animator, you can draw a crowd of people coming towards you and you keep coherent each individual as they come from the distance and get closer towards you. But essentially you're always looking at the first eight people and the rest are the crowds lost behind them. What a lateral procession does is it enables you to enlarge the scope of who you are seeing. You can see all of humanity if you wish. Every different person can walk past. So the the lateral procession of people became an important idea. And then it has all sorts of echoes and um, associations which spread outward from it. It goes backwards to these images of this endless procession of shadows on the wall of the cave that Plato is writing about in the Republic, which is 
the Ur story, the story of origin of Western Enlightenment thinking comes from that myth. And that, if you track it through, is the justification for uh, colonialism. It's the justification for all attempts to save the world on the assumption that you know what the world needs more than the people suffering in it do themselves. So that image of people suffering the world, to, to carry it along, is uh, a deeply embedded one. But also in Europe, the image of refugees, of migrants, is a strong image in the last 10 years, say. But in South Africa and in Africa, the sense of displaced people, the sense of people moving, whether it's from Rwanda or across sections of South Africa, is a very present one. And it's also present because it's not a world in which there are trains and efficient public transport, people move by foot and they carry the world on their shoulders. And that which seems a very natural thing to be drawing in Johannesburg for the last 40 years um, has found its moment in Europe now, but it's not a new phenomenon. Um, you know, the question of the simplification of those processions into shadows or silhouettes is one of the ways of making and the kind of which comes out of a shadow theatre tradition of both Indonesia but also German 19th century and 18th century silhouette cutters who made silhouettes of people. It's been part of the language that I've worked with for 30 years. I'd like to ask about your relationship with Philip Miller, who's the composer that you work with very closely on these projects. It seems to me that you must need a very naturally... Um, fleet-footed composer to work with you in order to sort of in some way correspond with your own language? Yes, I think there's, I have a very fleet-footed composer and I'm very fleet-footed in working with his compositions. So it shifts both ways. You know, very often I say, have a look at this piece of animation. What? Let's listen to different music, both by you and by other composers, and see what the music does to the image. And sometimes he'll come and say, I've got this piece of music have you got something that it might be interesting with? And then we'll take the given piece of music and look at it with many different video clips and pieces of film. And sometimes music written for one piece actually works much better with a completely different image. But what Philip is a genius at is in working not so much with found music but with particular musicians and working with what they can provide. So there'll be an impulse and they'll run with that impulse and he'll fix on certain parts and expand and do that. And so that's a, that's a conversation that happens between Philip and the musicians and between f me and Philip over it. And I would say over the is it 30 years that we've been working together, uh, Philip and I, pretty close to that, the ongoing question of the relationship of sound to image is one that constantly astonishes us and it's an ongoing investigation rather than something we we know in advance. So we've been working on a piece now for an exhibition in Cape Town, which is four huge megaphones in the atrium of the, of the museum. And so it's a sound sculpture, and different composers are writing different things. And he's made a piece which is a recording from the First World War. It comes out of the head and the note. Recordings of African prisoners of war, old wax cylinder recordings from 1918 uh, and 1917. And then someone reading a list of gifts that were given by a benevolent association in Britain to the troops from Africa, like 15 Ludo sets, 6 cricket bats, 24 cricket balls, 7 mouth organs, 8 gramophone records, a kind of crazy list of things that were being sent out. 
and coming from the impulse of the hymn book, the most astonishing recording done by two men, by two just two men singing "Abide with Me." As kind of the and on the one hand, it's you think you cannot use such a cheesy sentimental hymn in any context anymore, but and when you just listen to it, it's really very beautiful. So I kept on putting it on play again, play again, play again when he sent the file through. But when it's used in the context of these instructions about what needs to be sent to the troops and these recordings of African prison of law simply counting in all the different languages of Africa, it becomes an astonishingly rich collage of, of hope, of uh, fervent hope which was going to be dashed, of uh, kind of callousness, of people meaning well. All of those different things are somehow there without interrogating which is what in that sound world that is made. Can I uh, ask a sort of follow-up to that, yeah. which is uh, about your process and how do you transition from uh, drawing, which is at the heart of your practice and is a solitary endeavour, to um, these massive collaborative efforts where you are working with composers and performers and set, sound, lighting and costume designers and are really you know, massive teams of people? Well, the work is incremental. So there'd be an impulse, Africa and the First World War, or a project I'm working on now about the Sybil, the fortune teller of, for a sort of a one-act opera. And there there's an image of leaves swirling being blown around, and the Sybil writing your fortune on a leaf and going to fetch your leaf, but the leaf has blown away, and you never know if you're getting your fate or someone else's fate. And... So I knew I was going to be working with pages of a book. So a lot of it was drawing on pages of a book, drawing leaves on books, drawing uh, Michelangelo's paintings of the Sibyl on the pages of the books, and writing, collaging a text together of questions of predictions of the future and how much we can or can't know of the future. And then photographing them in a book, page by page, so when you watch the film it's like a flip book turning and turning. So that I'd done in advance of the workshop. When we gathered the people together, which would have been about 20 of us in the studio, as you say, costume designer, set designer, lighting designer, uh, some singers, uh, the couple of dancers I was interested in seeing. And so let's see what happens if we project the book on the wall and we put you standing, one of the dancers, in front of the book so we see you in the front of the stage, but in the book we see your shadow. So your shadow is going to interact with the drawings in the book. So first time around you do it facing the book and we see and we discover very quickly no, 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 it needs much, much less. Less, 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 less. Almost be still. Just not quite still. Find a shiver in your shoulders and your chest that is like the fluttering of the pages turning. And we said what we need a sound so we have six fantastic singers. So we tried things from traditional African songs to listening to some Stockhausen of a cappella singing. And we found a a piece of music which we tried but it became a bit soft and then we tried all right let's see if instead of singing all the lines one soloist will have but the rest will speak the lines but at the correct pitch so you have people talking at one level and then talking up to another level and then coming in their voice down and going down again and so that together it's both this talking multitude of all the questions coming to the suburb that together makes this extraordinary background harmony to the solo voice which is the voice of the sibyl so those over three days that's kind of gathered and then you might say what we need a scene where 
of the petitioners to the Sybil asking their fortune. And then, an, so we had, as we discovered, we made an office scene of people sitting in a line giving their questions, which are the sheets of paper blowing away in the wind. And then we had the clerk, who's a fantastic dancer, and we thought, well, it's a question of can you escape your fate? I think it was just after one of the terrible airline disasters. And whenever you have an airline disaster, there are two stories. Well, there are many, but two of the stories are one. The person who is due to be on the plane but missed it and so can phone their family and say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I wasn't on the plane. And other people who weren't be due to be on that plane but at the last minute got on because they were early at the airport. So that sense of are you, can your, does your evasive action meet the calamitous blow, as you had in that case, or how can you... So in this, we brought it down to two, which is the right chair, which is the wrong chair to sit on. One of the chairs will collapse, one will not. And it's a kind of a comic scene of a person either unable to choose the chair or choosing the chair, but then we simply added a rope to the chair so it could be pulled from one side of the stage to the other. And then we expanded it and said, can we put a little radio-controlled servo motor on a chair so that as the person approaches it, the legs collapse from under it, but maybe approaches it and nothing happens, nothing happens. Okay, he's certain it's right, and as he's about to sit, it collapses. Or he sits on it and nothing happens, and he gets up and then it collapses. So there's a whole morning of improvisation about what these... And that's dependent on having someone in the studio who can make a chair that can collapse and reconstitute itself, and otherwise just people with ropes pulling them away as he's about to sit down. So that's it grows like that. It's a series of stupid activities done with great assiduity in the studio. I'm, I'm struck listening to you describing that um, with almost a sense of fear about final product. This idea that it's so improvised, it isn't storyboarded in, a, in the way that a lot of filmmaking is. It seems to me to be um, an amazingly risky process, but I suppose that's where the magic is in a way. Well, it's not risky in the sense that we know that at the end everything is going to be set. It's not once we're on stage, it's not a let's just see what happens. There are very few times I've found when improvisations repeated and repeated don't just get weaker and weaker. So you need to catch the magic of an improvisation and then work very carefully to refine, to hone, to rehearse, to hold it. Um, But at the beginning, it's fine that there's a... And so at the end of the first workshop, there were maybe ten ideas, and we chose six of those as the six main scenes, and we'll have another workshop where some of those may go, some will become very short, some will become slightly uh, longer, and in the end we discover what we've made rather than knowing what we've made at the beginning. And also it means if you don't know what you're doing, in the process you're in this heightened state of being able to see all sorts of other things you see in the world. So there was a photograph I came across of a floor covered with sheets of paper and tables and chairs filled with piles of paper, and people sitting at them. It was like 50 times, no, 200 times as much paper as we put on the stage in our part, and then discovered this was a photograph of people who were going through Nazi papers as the preliminary, the preliminary stage of the Nuremberg trials, when there was just this mass of papers with this history which had to somehow be deciphered and turned into an ordered indictment. So in a sense, that gave us confidence of our scene in the office. And all we know now is that we need more chairs, more people, and huge amounts more paper. And so the show in Basel also includes uh, some of your earlier works, including the uh, set designs that you did for a play called Sophia Town. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
And and what you remember of working on that production? Sophia Town was a play made by the Junction Avenue Theatre Company, which was a a non-racial theatre company in Johannesburg in the 1980s and early 90s at a time when this was very rare. And it was it had to do with improvisations and different histories, white students and black actors uh, meeting and finding points at which their stories overlapped. They were never the same, but had moments of contact. And it was always an imperfect meeting of people from backgrounds of privilege and people who were in difficult conditions in the township. But over the years, a number of wonderful pieces of theatre were made, and one of them, directed by Malcolm Perky, was The Fire Town, the story of a suburb in Johannesburg, which was a freehold uh, suburb open to black owners, which during the high time of apartheid in the 1950s was declared a white area, and the suburb of Sophia Town was uh, demolished. The residents were sent to Soweto, and the new suburb was called Triumph. Um, and the play was about this. And I was one of the groups of the people doing the improvisations, writing it, but also one of the two designers together with Sarah Roberts. And one of my jobs was to paint the sets, which was a series of gouache paintings on brown paper, which were pinned to the flats. And when we moved venue, we'd simply unpin them, roll them up, put them on the back of a truck or in the hold of an aircraft if it was going overseas, and then repin them on other flats wherever we arrived. And these then were sitting in the, in the rafters of the garage of an old house, which I'd left many, many years before. And uh, the last of our friends leaving the house said, oh, there's still these old drawings. We chuck them out or keep them. And I said, well, okay, let's have a look at them. And then they were kept and this is the first time they're shown. No, they were shown in Salzburg a few years ago, but they're being shown. So they're halfway between paintings, but really they're very crude paintings and understanding them as a simply scenic painting for a theatre piece. And just to go back right to the beginning of your art making, um, you grew up in a household where, with two parents who were both prominent anti-apartheid lawyers. And your father, uh, Sidney Kentridge, actually defended Nelson Mandela and other members of the ANC uh, in the late 1950s during their trial for treason. And then later, the family represented the family of Stephen Biko during the inquest into his death. Uh, And I just wonder, how much did they tell you when you were a young child about the work that they did? And did they galvanize you? at an early age? I think I was, there's no moment where they said, let me tell you what we're doing. It was a gradual understanding of what they're doing, but, but from a very young age. So between, ninth, when, between when I was three years old and six years old, there was the treason trial of Nelson Mandela and 150 other people charged with treason, eventually after three years acquitted. And so I knew this word, the treason trial. And I can remember it very clear because at the bottom of our garden we had a stand of pine trees and on our veranda there was a tile made out of mosaics, the tile table. So that was, uh, let's have tea on the tile table was how he said. And so in my head he was going off every day to something that was the trees, the bottom of the garden and the tile, the trees and tile. The trees and tile was what he was, was what he was. So that stuck uh, closely. But yes, I think that my mother's ongoing rage at the government and at particular judges who carried out its 
actions was very palpable for a lot of my childhood. And my father's anger, which was very different. I mean, it was there, but it was a much more held-in measure that would come out at times in court appearances. It made it clear that, uh, yes, there was this history of the family, there was this understanding of what South Africa was from a very young age, um, and there was also a sense that it, the law profession had been done. I was never going to match what my parents had done. I needed to find something different, which became as different as it could be, drawing on the walls. And were your parents supportive of your uh, artistic <laughs> uh, endeavours? They were very supportive, and my father somewhat sceptical. Um, so though he was always said, why on earth would you do law if you could do anything else? And there's a very good reasons why I should do law, even if you can do other things. But at the time, it was a relief to feel, okay, that was not, there was never a pressure to be a lawyer, and always a lot of support for the years of me not knowing what I was doing, and then the years of being an, an artist. And the sense of skepticism is not a bad thing to have hovering at the edge of your Activities, Not that you can answer the questions, but that you know they're kind of there. I'd like to ask about the importance of... I think you said that you've stayed, you've lived within the same neighbourhood or, you know, within within five miles or so of where you grew up. You could have moved away from South Africa. Why haven't you? And, And how important... Is it still is 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 the place where you where you make the work to the work you make? Well, in many ways, Johannesburg is a very terrible city. So the fact of that after sixty four years, I'm still there must mean there's something strong holding me. Inertia is part of it, but not enough. It can't only be family, because in fact most of my family is in London, not in Johannesburg. Um, it's I think it has to do with what it is to work in the margins. But it also has to do with uh, South Africa in a way feeling like a premonition of the rest of the world, which is to say that the relationship of a small formal economy and an ever-growing informal economy seems to be the way a lot of things happen in the world, where you're constantly aware of the provisionality of every moment, how the world can change, where you understand the only hope is the energy that comes from different people from different fields, whether it's musicians, filmmakers, writers, working together to make something that is in itself the justification of where one lives and what one does. Whereas there's a great anomie to be said, well, let me just be part of the international art world and live in Berlin or London or New York. It's certainly not uh, impossible and in many ways would be much more pleasant. Um, But there's a sense of dissociation, of floating above the world, of having as your natural home the art fairs of the world, um, of your circle of friends being the people you'll meet at those openings. And whereas I love meeting the people from the art world and I do go to those kind of places, it feels very centering for that not to be the basis of existence. And just... um uh, uh, leading on from that, uh, we spoke a couple of years ago when you opened a foundation in Johannesburg called the Center for the Less Good Idea, uh, which has given a place for all sorts of performers and artists and musicians to come together. And I believe you've just closed your fifth season. So can you tell us a little bit about why you set that up? 
Well, the Center for the Less Good Idea is a small art center in Johannesburg that has it's in its third year, with our fifth season, we do two seasons a year. The title comes from the Tswana proverb, if the good doctor can't cure you, find the less good doctor. And that has to do with the grand ideas often needing things that arrive at the edges. You start with a great idea in a project, and as you start working on it, you see all of the faults and things that don't hold, and then you only hope that other images and thoughts emerge from the activity of making the work. That's what we call the less good idea. So it's, it's not to say there's no idea or it starts nowhere, but that when you've had your first idea, it's really you need, you have to hope for all the secondary ideas. And practically it means we do art, we have curators for each season who invite different writers, artists, filmmakers, musicians, dancers to make work. In the last season we've just done was a series of 20 11-minute epics. So each piece was 11 minutes long. Some were monologues, some were choral pieces, some had many musicians and dancers, some were more like short theatre pieces. Um, in many cases, people working with people in different uh, disciplines that they'd not worked with before. And it's not that one... At the end, we have four days of, like, a festival where there are performances every night. We did sort of ten of the 11-minute pieces each night, and there's an exhibition, and sometimes there's film. We did an invisible exhibition of nothing to see in the room, everything either augmented reality on an iPad or virtual reality in a headset. Um, And here also there were like 80 artists that had never worked with these mediums, working with them in different ways together with technicians who were very interested in working with artists rather than working with corporate logos, which is the norm for these kinds of uh, technologies. And it has been, I would say, in the three years that we've gone, there have been some remarkably wonderful pieces that have come out of there. And in fact, at the Holland Festival uh, in two weeks' time in Amsterdam, we will have a small theater where we will be showcasing four or five projects from the Center for the Less Good Idea. As a, uh, and we have public conversations, we have uh, open rehearsals of some performances. There are performances that are shown just once, which come from outside, but which we think should be so. So it's a really small scale, but it has an impact, particularly for the participants, much larger than the size of the rooms. And you intend to continue for the foreseeable future? Yes, I think what I said, uh, it's not about saying, uh, how does one make a legacy project that's going to go on and on? Because that becomes, if once that becomes your task, it becomes impossible. We've had a very good first six seasons, good enough to say, well, let's look at the next six seasons, so we know for the next three years we'll do it, and then we'll assess it. Either its moment will have gone, or it will transform into something else, or it will continue, but it doesn't have a pressure of having to be there. We're not trying to set up an endowment fund for this to last forever. We need money to do each season, but that's very different. Uh, And finally, uh, do you believe that artists have a responsibility to be political? And finally, no. The only hope of them being responsible politically is to not have that sitting on top of them as a pressure. I think it was Gabriel Garcia Marquez said the artist's responsibility, the artist's political responsibility is to write well, to undertake the activity with care, energy, and an openness to what will arrive. And then in the end, the art will show who you are and who the world is that in which you are making it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good.
William Kentridge, a poem that's not our own, is at the Kunstmuseum Basel until the 13th of October. Why Should I Hesitate, Putting Drawings to Work, is at the Zeitz Mocha in Cape Town, and Why Should I Hesitate, Sculpture, is at the Norval Foundation in the same city. Both shows run from 24th of August until March 2020. A big thank you to the Bloomsbury Hotel for hosting our chat with William. We'll be back with news on this year's Art Basel Fair after this. When time is all around us, on our wrists, on mobiles and even microwave ovens, it's easy to forget that timepieces were once the exclusive preserve of the rich and powerful. In the 17th and 18th centuries, clockmakers enjoyed celebrity status, competing with each other in a ceaseless quest for greater precision, and for the prize of the most extravagant designs. The King William and Queen Mary Royal Tompion clock that leads the Clive collection of exceptional clocks sale at Bonhams was the work of the greatest clockmaker of them all, Thomas Tompion. Known as the father of English clockmaking, Tompion supplied his ingenious and mechanically sophisticated clocks to the crowned heads of Europe. The William and Mary clock was a hugely important commission for Tompion. It had pride of place in the royal apartments in Kensington Palace. In the words of Bonham's head of clocks, James Stratton, this is one of the most valuable clocks ever to appear at auction. There is simply no other clock like it. To find out more, please visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. So, Art Basel has reached a real milestone. It's the 50th edition of the fair. But how celebratory is the mood? Melanie Gerlis, a columnist on the art market for the Financial Times and also editor-at-large at the art newspaper, is at the fair and she joins me on the line from Basel now. Melanie, it's the 50th edition of Art Basel this year. Are they doing anything special? Um, it, it is the 50th edition. I'm glad to say I haven't been to all 50. Um, they're not, actually. They seem to be saving the celebrations for the 51st edition because that will be the 50th year, so next year. So it's uh, it's business as usual. And how is business? Uh, it's pretty busy out there, actually. It's uh, It was packed from, I mean, 11 o'clock was the, when, when the VIP uh, opening began. Um, there were some serious buyers it feels very buzzy um i mean i would say you know the art market overall isn't isn't particularly booming this year but there are pockets um where it's in rude health and uh, one of those is definitely art basel we've had a number of sales figures in so far and notable was what sold on the david's verna stand wasn't it Yes, he seems to have had a very good fair. I think we got a list of about 10 works and none of them under a million dollars in terms of sales. I mean, there's a a 1966 Richter um, that has been in the same Italian family for for decades that sold for $20 million, um, according to to them. Um, They've had a polka for $10 million um, and there have been other other pretty high value sales coming through. I mean, White Cube has sold a Mark Bradford for nearly $8 million. Basilit seems popular. I mean, Ropac has sold one for 1.5 million euros, White Cube for 2.5 million. Um, I mean, it, it, it's an even uh, six figure sums from Listen Gallery, from Pace, um, Max Hetzler. I've, I've, had, uh, I've had quite a lot of sales uh, already reported to me. Is that quite normal or do you find that on a particularly successful fair people are hunting you down and giving you these statistics or do you have to kind of always have to sort of cajole them to to give them to you? Actually, it's become increasingly normal to get, you know, by about five o'clock, so for a fair that opens at 11, like this one by about five, six o'clock, increasingly normal for some of the bigger and, and more efficient galleries. 
to whiz round emails. And I actually, to a certain extent, I think that makes our conversations on the floor much more productive because we're not only asking about price and sales. Um, I think you also, that there's an element of pinch of salt as well. I mean, you have to, some of these sales will have been made a little ahead of uh, 11 o'clock on Tuesday morning um, through PDFs that the gallery has sent out already. Uh, some of the sales will be of works that aren't on the booth even. Um, so I, I, we have to, we take these reports, but I think it, it's a bit different from when you used to walk onto a booth and maybe actually see a sale happen. I haven't physically seen a credit card come out for $7.75 million. <laughs> I mean, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? You know, when you hear that a Richter has been, has sold for 20 million, is that, have negotiations been going on for some time, do you think then? It doesn't seem to me like an impulse by um i'm sure who knows who knows (laughs) so um i mean the the buying and selling i think i think a lot of our listeners will be curious to know you know how does the buying and selling work at an art fair because we're hearing more about these sort of private rooms or even spaces separate from the fair entirely where dealers are selling works from can you sort of flesh that out a bit and tell us what you know how does it all happen I mean, I think that the answer is it happens through as many channels as is possible. What happens at the time of an art fair is collectors are thinking about buying art and it's an opportunity for dealers to send out there you know this is what we've got it's almost i mean art basel in particular it's almost like saying you know you, this is the first time to see the new the, the new uh, model of a car it's the same thing these are new works by kerry james marshall and hervin anderson you know all of which i've i've seen today this is their first chance to see them here's a sneak peek so then there'll be some people who say oh actually i'm really interested in that and maybe some of the negotiations begin before um you've also got all these online viewing rooms now. Um, certainly, Zwerner, um Gagosian sometimes has one. House Worth has one at the moment where actually you don't even have to physically be in the fair at all. Um, you could, in fact, be in your home uh, or, or on a yacht somewhere and buy a work through the internet. But, but they're often timed around fairs because, like I say, that's the time when people are thinking about art. And then, of course, when you're when you're at the fair or if you're at the fair, if you get taken into a private room within a booth, that, of course, just makes all the exclusivity feel even more exclusive. Now, tell us about Gagosian's new Basel Gallery, because they've got several throughout the world. And uh, we thought this was going to be a temporary space, but it is now permanent. Tell us about it. Yes, that was, I think, three days ago, I wrote that this was a temporary space. And, and now we're told it's a permanent space. Not not so pop up after all. I mean, I think that it's it's a sign of the depth of collectors in this small country of, of Switzerland. And it's next to the most prestigious hotel in the world as well. It's near the Trois Hotel in Basel. So, you know, you've got this combination of the city's collectors and everyone coming into the city. Um, and, you know, he's got 16 galleries, so why not 17? What's, what's Basel like for the rest of the year in terms of art? I mean, obviously, there are really major museums. There's the Schaulager, there's the Kunstmuseum, uh, the Kunsthaler. You know, uh, but what about the market for the rest of the year? Are there many dealers already there? There aren't many galleries here. Um, I, th- I mean, there's probably about three or four that are what I would call Art Basel galleries actually in Basel. Um, but there is a very long, deep tradition of collecting. Um, And as you say, the museums 
here are extraordinary. You know, I suppose maybe Larry Gagosian is thinking about there are two weeks of the year when this business will be booming and maybe that's worth it. Yeah. Now, and what about Venice? Because obviously Venice Biennale has just happened. It's a moment where the art world descends on that city. Um, how does that affect sales in Basel? Do you, on the one hand, do you see lots of artists who are on display in Venice also at Art Basel? And also, are there any sort of sales negotiations that sort of happen behind closed doors in Venice? Oh, um, uh, yes, yes to both of the above. I mean, I, I, I think you'd be crazy as a gallerist not to bring your artist who happens to be showing in Venice. If you can get other types of their work or even similar types of work, I think you'd be crazy not to bring them to Art Basel. Um, I mean, it, the two events used to be much, much closer together in terms of the opening of Venice. But don't forget, Venice, the Biennale is still open, so there will still be people maybe who have come from further afield who go to Venice first and then Basel. So I, I, it, it, they're so close to each other in, in terms of, broadly speaking, relatively speaking, you would be crazy not to. I mean, I've seen... You know, Laure Provost, um, who's in the French Pavilion, I've seen her tapestries here at uh, Listen Gallery has sold one, and there's one at Natalie Obadia. You've also got Eva Rothschild, who's, uh, there's a ruin work at Kaufman Repetto Gallery, and Modern Art has brought one of her more geometric works as well. Um, and I'm sure they are selling like hotcakes. Now, one of the big themes in Venice, it turned out, I got it wrong, actually, when I first arrived in Venice and said on this podcast that there wasn't much climate change work. There was. There was a huge amount. Um, one, it was one of the big themes in Venice. And actually, you wrote a really interesting article about uh, fairs and climate change. Obviously, there's this massive influx of works and people from across the world. How seriously is the art world and the art market taking climate change? I think we're all very conscious of it and there are certainly works at the fair or you know art, I think artists have probably been longer preoccupied with climate change than, than the rest of us but they've definitely been pushed to the fore at the moment um, I do think breaking the habit of a lifetime is going to be tough I mean you just you look around at you know Doug Aiken work and you look at the people surrounding it and you think how did you all get here and and we have all nearly all jumped on airplanes um and so have all the works i think that's the hugely you know most events have got this issue i think but with art fairs you have that added issue of every single work has been flown and you look at unlimited with its you know 75 huge works that's going to take up a lot of airspace um so i do i think everyone is very conscious and you know there's a lot less plastic around um but whether that that seems to me to be a fairly small dent in um in our habits indeed i mean the the thing about the um you, you know you were mentioning the online sales earlier on the the, the, the fact is the art world still relies very much on the physical presence of people in the spaces in the parties in the in the exhibitions and the private views etc it needs people uh in a social space doesn't it doesn't it's not like the art world is going to migrate to an online experience in in the near future Absolutely. And, you know, along the, the same time as, you know, online has become a huge part of all of our lives in every in every sphere, what has become huge in the art market are art fairs. And of course, art fairs involve a ton of people all being in the same place. And it's partly, you know, I'd like to think it was all to do with seeing the art physically, but you're absolutely right. It, it's really not. It's it's the social 
environment and the concentration of people that that is so enjoyed and seems to work. And now what about the balance of the market, the primary market and secondary market in terms of sales and in terms of just uh, visibility at the fair? Last year in our conversation about Art Basel, we talked about what kind of work was on view and you talked about how there was a balance between secondary and primary markets. Um, we've seen a real rush it seems to me I'm getting an email every week with uh, a big new estate being signed up by one of the major dealers. Is that sort of thirst for artists' estates uh, reflected at the fair? Is there more of a presence for art on the secondary market? Well, it's an interesting point because I agree. I think secondary market art generally is quite difficult. Getting supply is very, very, very difficult. I mean, there are some dealers who have made, um, James Holland Hibbert has made a huge effort to get some Hodgkins and Rileys that have come from collections that have been there for a very long time, but it's very, very he's the first to admit that's very, very hard to do. The curious thing about states is in a way they they are, their secondary market as in they ex- they have existed for a long time, but they're often their sort of primary market. They haven't been seen before. Um, it's a new way of getting supply. Um, and then you rely on, you know, these galleries who are experts in selling primary art, art that hasn't been seen before and needs the marketing and everything else to go with it, are particularly good, therefore, at selling older work that hasn't been seen before. Um, it's just the problem with the states, and you're certainly seeing a lot more of them here. The problem is that they're very, very concentrated into a few galleries. Um, I would say notably, you go into Hauser and Worth's booth and you look, you know, there's Piero Manzoni, there's Philip Guston, there's John Chamberlain, who's, you know, that's just gone to that gallery, Louise Bourgeois. Um, it's quite dominant. So I think you are getting this situation where two or three galleries have phenomenal supply and it's much, much harder for everyone else. Do you mean that it's difficult for smaller galleries to basically have the resources in order to cope with the demands of an estate? So Because there are, there are quite a lot of demands on a sort of academic level as well as a sales level, right? Yes, exactly. And in the same way as these galleries can pay you know, a, a million dollar sign-on fee to a new to a living artist they can promise you know to put together a catalogue raisonné or sort out the archive materials and sell some work um to, to an estate so i'd imagine that's quite appealing but you are also you are also seeing as i mentioned earlier quite a lot of new works by sought after living artists this year I actually that rather stood out more for, for me you know the, the new works by Hervin Anderson at Thomas Dane Arthur Jaffa at Gavin Brown Kahinda Wiley at Sean Kelly and actually you mentioned the Kerry James Marshall that that sold at Zwerner for 3.5 million dollars um so, so there is there is also that going on this year um the Richter that sold at Zwerner was sold from a private collection, a private Italian collection, as you said, and it was named in, in the sort of sales report. Um, the gallery named who these people were and all that kind of thing. Is, is that standard practice? I mean, it seemed to me that, that this is, it, it's a curious thing because we're always talking about how different parts of the art world are sort of blurring into, uh, into others. And I'm, it's more familiar to see named collections being sold at auction, for instance. Or, or is that just a misinterpretation of mine? I th- actually, I think, to be honest, that, I mean, you, you don't often get 
either the name of a buyer and you even really get the name of a seller unless the seller wants it and at the moment you know we're in a market where it's a seller's market where people need supply and need supply so if the seller is saying I want you to sell us and I want you to make a big play of my name and say who it is and say that we're restoring our villa which they are doing um, on, on the back of it then you know David's word is going to do what you tell them to do. And, and do you know how those kind of deals work in terms of, you know, for instance, is it more advantageous for a collector to go through a gallery as opposed to an auction house? A gallery would say yes and an auction house would say no. I mean, <laughs> the, the old the old adage is, you know, sell, uh, sell at auction, buy, buy, it, buy from a dealer in terms of price you know differentiation but you know on both ends you're paying you're paying fees um or a markup or whatever it is at both ends you could win or you could lose if you're going to sell through a gallery and they say we're going to make you a major work at our basel then that sounds pretty appealing and there's less there's less risk at auction you could you could go up unless you're guaranteed but we're not going to get into guarantees now um but you could go up and not sell Whereas here you can be on a booth and if it didn't sell, I didn't think Zwerner would have put out an email that said, we haven't sold this Richter for 20 million. So there is a, there's an advantage to the privacy side of things. You mentioned earlier on that the art market isn't particularly heated at the moment. What did you mean by that? There's still a very uncertain uh, geopolitical, social, economic environment around us all. Um, the tensions between China and the US haven't really gone away, um, and they're they are affecting you know the, the, the economies of both major countries. You've also got everything we have in the UK uh, and the uncertainty around Brexit, and a rather nervous you know Europe itself is a rather nervous place at the moment, and there are no obvious countries that are going to make up the slack at the moment it's it's not like when china first came into the market or when we had boom from russian and middle eastern buyers everyone's a little more restrained um and and no one wants to lose money at the moment but there are you know the art market is of a certain size and it is becoming increasingly concentrated in in other ways so if there's anywhere where you're going to see high numbers for important works if you like or, or well well flagged works it seems that the may auctions uh and november auctions in new york have become one of those pockets and art basel is definitely another one of those pockets melanie thank you so much for talking to us again you're very welcome ben speak soon art basel continues until the 16th of june and that's all for this week. If you're at Art Basel, you can read all the latest from our team at the fair in our daily newspapers there. And if not, it's all online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. Meanwhile, please subscribe to our daily newsletter for all the latest news. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do. And if you're enjoying it, do give us a rating or review. It helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. And The Art Newspaper is on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mahowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor. 
Thanks to William and to Melanie, and thank you for listening. Next week, I'll be in Yorkshire in northern England looking at the Yorkshire Sculpture International Festival, and particularly a show of the American sculptor David Smith. And we'll also explore artists' influences by looking at a new book with its author, Jory Finkel. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.